Good morning. It's good to see all of you. Please join me now in prayer as we will look to God's word and God's truth and what it has to say to us about the selfishness of sin. It's not a light topic that we'll be considering this morning and we need God's help as always. So let's go to him now and ask him for that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are a glorious God and we ask that you would be working in our hearts and minds even now as we consider the truth of your word that we might see how glorious you are. And Father, you also are a merciful God. And we pray that you would give us eyes to see your mercy that is new to us even today. Father, your word is breathtaking sometimes in its honesty about us, about what we are in Adam. Father, we pray that we would be able to stare that in the face today as we consider the the selfishness of sin that is this disease that we all have. And we pray that as we are honest about ourselves and how that affects all of our relationships, that we at the same time would be hopeful in Christ. That we would be all the more grateful for what he has accomplished for us. And that we would be affected by the ways that you are working by your spirit to change us even now. So, Father, we pray for your help. We don't want to waste our time. And we pray that your spirit would show up and move in power. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I did this last week. This is the second of four uh, sermons in a topical sermon series called Recalibration. A series on grace-driven marriage. I always like to remind people, especially if you're newer with us or if this is your first time with us today, that this is not what we typically do here at CBC during the preaching time. We are typically making our way through a book of the Bible. Uh, So this kind of topical sermon series happens every once in a while, about once a year, probably. And one of the main reasons for that, other than the like more important ones, is my blood pressure. I get stressed out uh, when I have to prepare topical sermons because it's just a different Process And so topical sermon series are not easy, at least I find, to prepare. Uh, but we trust that God has good purposes in this, uh, in this sermon series. I already mentioned that there was one sermon that happened in this series before this one. So if you are here today and you haven't heard the sermon from last Sunday, I would encourage you to visit our church's website. You'll find the sermon audio there. Uh, and there's also, I think, a link on that website to uh, the sermon audio podcast that we now have that launched about a month or so ago. Uh, You can listen to the sermon in either one of those platforms. And even though you'll be hearing this one before that one, potentially, I still think it will be helpful for you, uh, just given how foundational last week's message was to the series. Uh, I mentioned this last week, too, uh, that I don't intend for this to be a typical marriage sermon series in that I will probably at best only reference the typical passages on marriage. What we're doing in this series is looking at a more foundational or high level, however you want to say that, a high level biblical look at us, really, sin, gospel, grace, these realities and what they mean for every relationship we have, frankly, and certainly for our marriages. And so the vast majority of this content, honestly, is applicable to every human being in the room because we are all affected by these realities, the realities of sin. Uh, in particular, and we all have many different kinds of relationships, and sin affects every one of them. So listen that way. 
A couple of disclaimers I gave them last week. I'm giving them again. Number one, disclaimer number one, I have not arrived. I have not arrived in my marriage. Like I said last week, I preach better sermons than I can live. That's true every week. And it's certainly true in a series like this one. If I could only preach about the things that I feel like I've got a really good handle on in marriage, this sermon series would be a waste of time. It would be terrible. And so it would do you not very much good at all. So I am very much with you in the fight. This is not me saying, hey, you need to get up to my level or come be where I am. God help you if that's all you're aspiring for. Right. Our goal and our bar is much higher than that. Disclaimer number two is that these subjects obviously are vast. They're immense. And so there will be a lot of really good things, a lot of really helpful things that I won't have time to touch on in each individual sermon and certainly even in the series as a whole. I trust that you understand them. Happy to talk to you about anything that these sermons prompt in your mind by way of questions or even concerns that you may have. I'm going to give a word of pastoral instruction again. Did this last week as well. Listen for yourself. Listen for you to this message today. So in other words, don't listen for someone else. Don't listen for your spouse, right? We don't need to be throwing any bows during the sermon, right? Like nudging our spouse like, hey, babe, this is, this is sticking it to you pretty good, right? And in fact, our tendency to do that, to listen to this sermon or any sermon uh, for that matter, but maybe in particular, a sermon on marriage about sin. Our tendency to listen to it and think, man, this really is sticking it to my spouse. That is evidence of one of the greatest problems that we have in marriage in the first place. Right? It's that self-righteousness thing. We think well of ourselves and not so well of the people that we're married to often. And so I have hopes for how God might use this series that we might learn and be confronted with things that would recalibrate the ways that we think about marriage and the ways that we would approach it. And so as we think specifically today about sin and the selfishness of sin, I certainly even in preaching last week's message felt kind of laid bare, kind of you know, laid open, convicted, challenged. I trust that was true for many of you. I pray that you are encouraged by the hope of the gospel as well. But today is going to be another day where I trust many of us will feel the weight of conviction. And we will feel very much that God's word is, is kind of cutting us in half, cutting us in pieces and then putting us back together again as we consider our selfishness. And at the same time, friends, never forget the hope of the gospel. I pray and I trust that will be clear in the message today. Because Jesus has very much, as we've talked about already, come to rescue us, not only from the wrath of God and bondage to sin. He has come to rescue us very much from ourselves. And we need that rescue. So now, as this is a topical sermon, I'll be referencing scripture uh, at various points during it. And as I encourage you to do last week, jot those scriptures down. Look at them even this afternoon. Uh, but there's not a passage to read today. So we're going to make our way into point number one. This is point number one of four. Four-point message today, but we'll begin with point number one, the real battle. The real battle, as opposed to a false one. The real fight. So friends, I would say that the real battle in life, and certainly in your marriage, as it pertains to you, 
is a battle essentially between two kingdoms. Two kingdoms. It's a battle between the kingdom of God and what I'm going to call the kingdom of you. The kingdom of God on the one hand and the kingdom of you on the other hand. This is a battle fundamentally fought on the grounds of your heart and mine. Because the cravings and the desires of our hearts, they are what give rise ultimately to all of the problems that we have. But they are certainly what gives rise to all of the problems, the challenges, the fights that we have within marriage. The cravings and the desires of your heart. We battle indwelling sin. We've been considering this a lot lately, even from... Paul's letter to the Galatians, we thought about it some last week. The seventh chapter of the book of Romans is so critical for our understanding. To realize, all right, we have been counted righteous in Christ, and now we have been set free from the bondage to sin. We are no longer underneath the dominion of sin. And so we have a different existence now than we used to have. For those who know Christ in the room, it is possible for you not to sin now. Life is not the same as it used to be. And at the same time, you still battle this thing called indwelling sin. There is still sin within you that wages war against your spirit. And that struggle, as we thought about, is real. It's an internal conflict that is ours now as followers of Jesus Christ. And so because of that indwelling sin within you, because of the fallenness that's still a part of your nature... We have a heart issue. We have a heart problem. Our hearts cause all kinds of difficulty in our relationships. You know that as well as I do. Think with me about Scripture and what it has to say with respect to our hearts. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. The Lord tells us quite clearly that the heart, the heart of man, is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Rhetorically, the answer is no one on earth. God can But we don't. We don't understand our own hearts and how wicked and sick and depraved they are. I said this last week. You have done many things in your life that you never thought you would do. So have I. Naturally, we desire evil. Naturally, in our fallenness, in the state of sin in which we still live, we desire to do evil and wicked things. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 is horrific language about our hearts and our desires. God looked and saw that the thoughts and desires of man's heart was only evil continually. It's what we are naturally in Adam. We considered last week Romans chapter 3 verses 9 and following where Paul is citing quite a bit of the Old Testament to make it quite clear to us that nobody is good. No one. Lest we be self-deceived. No one is righteous. No one seeks after God. Our mouths are full of bitterness and cursing. And we are prone to hate and destroy one another. We have no peace in our lives. There's no knowledge or understanding of God. But ruin and disaster are in our path. Right? It's not a flattering picture at all. Genesis chapter 3 and 4 that we've considered part of already this morning. We know because of the fall, because of sin and its effect on us, that we want what we want. And what I mean by that is that we want our own way. We're self-interested at the core. 
as fallen human beings. And if anyone gets in the way of what we want, it's not going to go well for them. Exhibit A is found in Genesis chapter 4, which we read this morning. Cain killed his brother Abel not long after the fall had occurred. The first children born on planet Earth after sin entered the world. A brother killed his brother because of this issue. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6, which is printed on the front of your bulletin. We all like sheep have gone astray, right? We have all gone our own way. That reality, the fact that we have all gone our own way and have rejected God's authority or anyone else's, the fact that we want to do what we want and we really don't want to listen to anyone who wants to tell us otherwise, that is the root and the heart of sin. And so friends, as you reflect on what this means for you, I hope it's becoming clear that the real battle that you fight is not against someone else. The real battle that you fight is not against your husband or your wife. The real battle that you fight is a battle inside. It's an internal war where you and the regenerate, born-again part of you are waging war against sin. And the battle is real. The struggle is intense. And so that brings us now, friends, to point number two. Point one was just kind of a foundational reality about the real battle. Number two, we're going to call the real problem. The real problem. So the real problem for us in our marriages, just straight up, is the selfishness of sin. It's a heart issue. It's a heart problem. It's the heart posture that says something like this. My fulfillment... And my happiness are the goal. My agenda, and that you know, by implication means not God's or anyone else's, but my agenda is the priority. Of course, we would never say it that way, right? We're good Christian folk. We wouldn't talk like that. And we might even deny that it's even true of us that we think in those terms. My fulfillment, my happiness, my agenda, they matter most. But deep down, we know the truth. Real talk for just a minute. In our flesh, and by that I mean in our sinful nature, we are utterly selfish and self-absorbed. We are out for ourselves, full stop. So this is the root of so much of the brokenness of the human race, like high-level big picture. And it's the root of so much of the brokenness and the dysfunction that exists in our marriages and in every relationship that we have. The Bible makes this very clear. That this heart problem, from the heart of man come all of these wicked and horrible things that manifest themselves in relationship. So think about how we define things. Just to kind of illustrate your selfishness and mine. This is very much we here, right? Think with me for just a minute about how we would define what a good day or a good marriage or a good life is. From our perspective, my day was good, right? If it was comfortable, if it was pleasurable for me, if it was maybe an easy, just kind of joyful day. My day was good maybe because I accomplished a lot and I feel good about that. 
My marriage is good from my perspective. If it's making me feel happy, if it's making me feel fulfilled, my marriage is good if my spouse is just gleefully helping me realize all of the dreams that I have ever hoped for, right? My life, like big picture, my life is good if my hopes and my dreams are coming true. My life is not so good if it's filled with disappointment, right? Or challenges or trials. I think you get the idea. Friends, the sad reality about all of us is that we all, every single person in this room and on planet Earth, we are all about this small, petty kingdom of one. This small, petty kingdom of me. And so, our own fulfillment, just continue to think with me about this. If, lest we be deceived and think that our notions of fulfillment and happiness don't drive us in so many areas of our lives. Let's think together. Ask yourself this question. Why is it that you got married in the first place? Why did you get married in the first place to the person you married? Now, the desire to get married is good, right? That's clear. Generally speaking, that's a pattern for human life. It's certainly not a bad thing to want to be married. True. In our culture, we don't have arranged marriages. We are able to choose freely the person that we would marry. And that in and of itself is also not bad. But think about why you chose the person you chose. This is just kind of like, let's pull back the curtain of your heart and mine. And I'm talking about Christian people now. Christians in this room, why did you choose the person you chose? I would contend that it's because you saw in the person that you would marry someone who could give you what you wanted. You had or have still hopes and dreams for yourself, for your life, and you saw in that person that you chose to marry someone who could make those hopes and those dreams come true. You had the list, right? We all did. I want these things, ideally anyway, right? Again, I'm not saying, don't misunderstand me, that it's bad that you met someone in whom you saw all of these desirable things. Praise God that that happened, right? But think with me some more. You're concerned about building the kingdom of you because you're a sinner. And in that person that you chose to marry, you saw a person who could help you make good on your own little kingdom dream. You perhaps quickly fell in love, as we said. What you most likely fell into was something we might call attraction, which is not bad either. Attraction is not a bad thing in and of itself. But it could be said of all of us, when we met that person and the chemistry was just like off the charts and the attraction was magnetic, it could be said of all of us that the love we were in had a lot more to do with loving ourselves than it did about loving the other person. So what becomes problematic, brother, sister, friend, is when you take that kind of dynamic into your marriage relationship. Because, of course, let's be real here. I'm not, I'm not saying that you have no concern for your spouse or that I have no concern for Michelle. That's not what I mean at all. Of course, we care for our spouses. We do. 
But there is a part of us that feels just viscerally that he or she needs to keep delivering on my dreams. He or she needs to keep contributing to my happiness. He or she needs to keep contributing to my fulfillment, to this process of self-actualization for me. And certainly he or she cannot stand in the way of what I want for myself and for my life. How dare her? How dare him? So this, friends, this root heart issue that we're trying to examine honestly right now is why every marriage gets really hard and many get really ugly at some point. Whether that's after a week or a year or maybe even many years. There comes a point when all of us have this like moment of realization and we say, um, this marriage situation that I'm in right now is not giving me what I want. It's not giving me everything that I want. We have a moment where we think, I did not think it would be like this. Or I didn't sign up for that problem. I can tell you that right now. I didn't think this would be an issue that I would ever encounter in my marriage. I didn't know that this was going to be a problem. Every married person in this room has thought that. Our posture as fallen sinners, self-interested, is that we need to get what we want and what we long for and what we think we deserve. And if we don't get that, we're ticked. We're not happy. After all, this life, this marriage that I'm in, it's about my happiness. It's about my comfort, my enjoyment, my fulfillment. And so here's a diagnostic question for you. And just preface to this, it's going to hurt a little bit. It's not going to be a flattering answer that you give. At least it wasn't for me. Diagnostic question. How much of your anger in your marriage over the last month had anything whatsoever to do with the kingdom of God? How much of your anger in your marriage over the last month had anything to do with the kingdom of God? I would answer that myself. None of it. I trust that's what you're thinking too. Even over the last year, how much of my anger in my marriage has had anything to do with the kingdom of God? We know the truth that it's had everything to do with the kingdom of me. We get mad when our spouses break the laws of our kingdom, right? Our antennas are up for that and we see it happening and we're not happy about it. When you get mad or I get mad because your spouse has different preferences than you, Friend, that's the kingdom of you. It's not the kingdom of God. You want to watch sports and she's not feeling it. Or you want to play music and he wants it quiet. Or you want to go out and she wants to stay in. You want pizza and he wants a healthy meal. Right? And you're irritated. You're frustrated. That's about you. It's not about the kingdom of God. And those are the, those are the kinds of things that we fight about in our marriages. When you get mad or I get mad because your spouse, it's going a little deeper now, is legitimately wired differently than you. That's about the kingdom of you, not about the kingdom of God. Right? You're a morning person and she's not. 
You thrive off of people and get energy from large gatherings and your husband is just utterly wiped out by social interaction. Or maybe you're an external processor, right? And you like to talk everything out. And your husband or your wife is like, I need like three days before I can even come back and have that conversation, right? We get frustrated. We get angry. It's about the kingdom of you. It's not about the kingdom of God. Just a quick aside on that piece about being wired differently than your husband or your wife or your brother or sister in this church. Who do you think made your spouse? Who do you think wired him or her the way that he or she is wired? Who determined your husband or your wife's constitution? rhetorical question. We know the answer to that one, right? God did. Have you ever considered that God has ordained that you marry the person you're married to? Have you ever considered that he knew exactly what he was doing when he determined that? Now, this is hard because I'm looking around the room and there are marriages that are hard. There's no accident. God didn't vacate the throne when you decided to marry person you're married to now? Have you ever considered that God has good purposes in the difference between you and your spouse? The differences that exist in your constitution that drive you up the wall? Have you ever thought about that? Kind of back in now. Just kind of continuing to examine us and how we get so worked up with the kingdom of me and not so much the kingdom of God. When you're irritated or I'm irritated because dinner is going to be later than we expected. And we fight. That's kingdom of you stuff, right? When you're irritated because your spouse needs help with something and you weren't anticipating it, you had different plans for how you were going to use that hour and you are not happy. That's kingdom of you. It's not the kingdom of God. When you're mad because you want to go out with friends but your spouse feels very much that he or she needs an evening at home with you. And you are just frustrated and not happy. That's the kingdom of you, not the kingdom of God. I could go on and on and on. And, you know, the the sort of thing here for me as your pastor is that, I mean, where do you think these illustrations come from? Some of them are hypothetical, but many of them aren't. I struggle with this just like you. I am a fallen sinner desperately in need of the grace of God like you. If there's going to be any hope for my marriage or my relationships. So friends, the real problem, right? That's the heading over point number two. The real problem is the selfishness of sin. The real problem is the selfishness of sin that says this is about my happiness and this is about my agenda. And here's the thing. This is where it gets a little bit worse before it gets better, right? We are all blind to that real problem. We are all blind to that real problem, to the selfishness of sin that exists within us. We often do not see it. But there is something else that we see as clear as day. And that brings us to number three, point number three, which I'm going to call the false problem that we think is the real problem. Point number three, the false problem that we think is the real problem. Track with me. So the false problem 
is also a heart issue. It's a heart posture. And it goes something like this. My spouse is at least largely what's wrong with my marriage. My spouse is at least largely what's wrong with my marriage. That's the false problem that we think is the real problem. So reason with me for a moment about how that problem of the heart manifests itself in your relationships, maybe in your marriage in particular. One way this posture of thinking that your spouse is the issue manifests itself. I touched on this some last week, but it's so foundational. I want to say it again. Way number one, manifestation number one, is that we see our spouse's sin as more significant than our own. We see our spouse's sin as more significant than our own. This is not, I'm going to say this again, too. There's a little bit of repeat from last week, and that is okay. We will trust God in them. There is not a counseling session that the elders of this church leave when it's over a marital issue or relational strife, which is many of them, right? There is not a single counseling session like that that we leave when we don't look at each other and say, this would be so much better. This marriage, this situation would be so much better if they were each more mindful of their own sin than they are the sins of their spouse. I said last week that every married person in the room needs to own this reality that your marriage is hard because you're in it. Let me say that a different way this week. You need to realize that the biggest problem in your marriage is you. The biggest problem in your marriage is you, not your spouse. Concern yourself. So what's the takeaway, right? What's the takeaway from that? The takeaway is to concern yourself with your sin, right? Concern yourself with your sin. Deal honestly with it. Deal humbly with it before God and before your spouse. Because as we thought about, as I mentioned already today, by nature, we are so self-righteous. And self-righteousness is all kinds of destructive in a relationship. We'll be thinking about that probably more even in the weeks to come. If you want to build trust and love and safety and things like that in a marriage, self-righteousness destroys that. We are so prone to justify ourselves and then stand from the moral high ground and wag our finger at our spouse and condemn them. Because we're convinced that we're better. We're convinced that we are the mature one in the relationship. We're convinced that in this particular circumstance that we're in the right. And I'm going to prove to you how right I am. We keep a record of all the times that we've been wrong. By our husband or our wife. And perhaps worse. We keep a record of all the times we've been patient or gracious with our spouse. So this is that whole like, you don't even know how good I am to you posture, right? You don't even know all of the things that I swallow on a daily basis just so I don't blow up at you all the time. Right? It's that thing. I have been so patient. I have been so gracious. You don't even realize it, babe. That's how we talk. Right? We regularly, seriously, think about it. Self-righteousness and condemning your spouse. We regularly assume horrible motivations in our spouses. 
Oh, he meant to do that. I know. She intentionally forgot to do that. Or she intentionally did this thing. And then we turn right around and we are furious when we are misunderstood. Right? Amen, somebody. Right? And we're all in this boat. And so all the while, when all this is going on, we are utterly blind. We're righteous in our own eyes. We are blind to the ways that our sin is harming our spouse. The jagged edges of us, right? The jagged edges of our personalities are absolutely ripping our spouse to pieces and we don't even see it. We're not aware of it at all sometimes. And then even if we do see some of our sin, right? Some of it, not all of it, but some of it's coming to light. We tend to give ourselves a pass. Or we minimize it, right? After all, we know how hard we're trying. That's the posture. Second way that this fake problem that we think is the real problem manifests itself in your marriage. If the first one was you think that your spouse's sin is more significant than yours. The second way that it comes out is that we are convinced that we are the ones who are really sacrificing and suffering for the sake of the marriage. We are convinced that we are the ones who are really sacrificing and really suffering for the sake of the marriage. Implication, my spouse is not, at least near as much as I am. So this is real. And this gets really ugly. So have you been there? How many in the room would... Raise your hand and say, yeah, I've played that whose life sucks more game, right? We've done that to our shame many times with our spouses. You're comparing everything that you do for the marriage or everything that you do for the family to what your spouse is doing. And you're convinced that you've got the high ground. You're convinced that if the accounts were measured, <laughs> yours is bigger. You're spending a lot more capital than your spouse is spending. You vent and you grumble and you lash out at your spouse because your life is so hard. Because you're the one who's having to do all these things that you don't want to do and you're the one who's having to give up all these things that you want. And the implication, of course, is that your spouse has it easy, at least compared to you. Friends, that is the selfishness of sin. That causes us to think that way. Our marriages in that context, when we start to play that game, who's got it harder? Our marriages become so antagonistic. They're adversarial, right? It's no longer the biblical, God-honoring, good, life-giving posture of me for you. It's now me against you. Third way that this false problem that we think is the real problem manifests itself in our marriage or marriages is that we see our spouse as getting in the way of our dreams and desires and preferences. We see our spouse as getting in the way of our dreams, our desires, our preferences. So whether that's his or her sin or whether that's the ways that he or she is different than us, it doesn't matter so much because he or she is the problem because he or she is hindering me in some way. 
This becomes obvious when we start to think in these terms. We generally don't talk like this. We kind of keep this stuff hidden. We think it though. If only she were this. Fill in the blank, right? Things would be better. If only she were extroverted. Or if only she were this. Then our marriage would be better. Or if only he weren't this. Then I would be happy. That kind of talk is revealing this heart issue in us. It's a disease, this kind of thinking. And we've all got it. We've all caught it by birth. So where all of this goes, friends, the real problem that we don't see and the false one that we see as clear as day, this ends up putting us in a situation where sometimes we're not even able to be in the same room as the person we say we love. This puts us in a place where we can't even tolerate them. Where we even feel hatred and malice and bitterness and just rage against the person that we say we love. It's insane, right? It's craziness. It speaks to the damage that sin does. You want to know how horrible sin is? Think about these things. This is what sin will do in a marriage. And this, friends, this happens in every relationship we have. Marriage may be most intensely because of the 24-7 nature of it, right? So it's really important, friends, that we would come to grips with this reality. This is maybe something you'd want to jot down. No imperfect person could ever give you happiness. No imperfect person could ever give you happiness. And that's not what marriage is about anyway, right? You know that, and I do too. So what we need, this is another kind of important thing for us to own. What we need is not for our spouses to get their acts together. What we need is to be rescued from ourselves. Which brings us to point number four. The real need. So if we had the first point, the real battle, the second, the real problem, third, the fake problem, false problem that we think is the real problem. All of that brings us to the real need. And so frankly, the real need, friends, as I've already just stated, is that we need to be rescued from ourselves. And praise God that he has done that ultimately in Christ Jesus. So this is where the good news comes in, right? We've been really honest about our sin for a while, how selfish we are. We can be honest about that because of what Christ has accomplished. So here at CBC, we love to herald what we like to refer to as the objective realities of the gospel. I might even call them the declarative realities of the gospel, meaning that the gospel is something that has been done by Jesus that is received simply by faith. This is why it matters so much that Christ not only atone for our sin to pay for the wrong that we've done, but it matters that He lived a perfect life under the law to fulfill all righteousness for you. We can look honestly at our sin because we know Christ has paid for it, and at the same time, He has accomplished all the righteousness we will ever need. So there's no need for me to parade some false righteousness around. There's no need for me to boast in the good things that I think I've done. Because Christ has accomplished every good work that's needed. Now, you will do good works as a believer. We've talked about that many times. But they are not meritorious before God. 
So, Isaiah 53 and verse 6, that's on the front of your bulletin and mine. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We have all gone after our own agenda. We have all rejected God's authority and every other good kind. We have all pursued the ends that we desire. Everyone else be damned, right? Everything else be damned. I'm going after what I want. We've all done that. It's the root problem in our lives, in our marriages, in every relationship we have. But then Jesus took our sin. He took that wickedness. He took that selfishness. That selfishness that we've been considering for like 30 minutes today. He took that on himself. All of it. He took every selfish thought, every selfish deed, every selfish desire. He took that selfish nature that you've got on himself and atoned for it all. And then provided righteousness for you. And he saved us from the wrath of God and he saved us from ourselves. He saved you, in other words, from the bondage to sin that you were born into and I was also. So Jesus came in a very real way, friends, to destroy misplaced loyalty, right? He came to destroy our loyalty to ourselves. He came to free us from the bondage of the selfishness of sin and to set us free to something much greater. Praise be to his name. And so God has rescued us from ourselves in Christ ultimately and at the same time. It doesn't just stop with that declarative reality. You are justified. You are righteous in God's sight. Amen. And he doesn't just leave you where you are. He works in you by his Holy Spirit. He's working to renew your mind and my mind and to change our hearts and to transform us. It's what we call sanctification. Sanctification, by the way, is something that God does too. God justified you. God sanctified you ultimately. Are you a participant in it? Yeah. And ultimately, if anything happens in you that's good, it's because God did it in you. He gets the credit. You don't. The question is begged, though, as we think about sin and selfishness and marriage and all these things. Why would God set it up the way that he has? Why would God set it up the way that he has where we are put in this crucible called the marriage relationship in the middle of this process called sanctification? Why would he do that? Because it seems to me, at least from my human perspective, it's like, God, wouldn't it be better if I was like fully or at least mostly sanctified before I got married? My marriage would be better. My marriage would be easier. Like, why is it not that way? I mean, holy smokes, God, what's going on? Friends, God has set it up this way because he intends to sanctify people by his spirit, yes, but through the means of relationships. And he means to sanctify you, married person, through your spouse. And so this is often hard, this kind of sanctification. Know that. But God is not about what's easy. He's about what's best. And so God, through his word and through relationships, shows you how much you still need his grace. That's one way he's working in you. The more aware you are of your need for grace is actually great evidence of growth in the faith. I don't know if you've thought about that before. Right? Because we tend to think that, oh, well, the better I get and the more I grow, it's almost like in our minds we would need less grace maybe. 
Not true at all. The more aware you are of your struggle with sin all the time and your need for God's grace all the time, that's evidence of great growth. It's evidence of great maturation in the faith. You need it to be this way. And so do I. There are things that God shows us about ourselves in our marriages that we desperately need to see. So thinking about this grace thing, forgiveness and mercy and all those wonderful things, I can see so clearly, I'm maybe speaking personally, but I trust this will resonate with you. I can see so clearly in my marriage how I want grace and mercy and forgiveness for me. But then I can be so unwilling to give those same things to my wife. I trust you've seen those things too. You desperately need and want from God mercy and grace and forgiveness, compassion, empathy, nearness. And those are the very things that you so often struggle to give to your spouse. And God shows you that and shows me that in that marriage relationship. And it's good of him to do it. We need relationships, whether it's marriage or any other kind. I would say that very little, I'm tempted to say none, but because of how I understand God's spirit working through his word, I will say I'm not going to say none. I'm going to say very little. Very little of our sanctification takes place in isolation. Very little of our sanctification takes place in isolation. Implication, it takes place in relationship. It takes place through the means of marriage and friendship and church membership. Right? One of the reasons you need to be a member of a local church is for, yes, your encouragement, your exhortation. People can stir you up to love and good works. That's all true. That sounds fun, kind of. But part of the reason you need the local church is to have conflict and to have trial, relational strife, and then work through that under the gospel. Right? Apply gospel to your relationships and to your marriage. We need it desperately. It grows us. It makes us more grateful to God. It gives us more joy in what Christ has accomplished as we reflect on these things. And the more you know that you need grace, the more ecstatic you are to receive it. The more moved you are and gripped you are to have been shown it in Christ. Just kind of continue to beat this drum of kind of get your eyes off yourself stuff that like we've been doing for a while now, which is good for us. Kind of fits in the vein of today's sermon. Remember this with respect to your sanctification. Why has God set it up this way? Sanctification through marriage and relationship. Your sanctification is not primarily for you. You ever thought about that? Your sanctification is not primarily for you anyway. I would say it's not at all for you. Now, I realize that I'm standing in contradiction to almost all of evangelicalism in saying that. Because the thinking and the writing and all the rest that goes on in the evangelical world is all about you need to grow in the faith, be obsessed with your growth in the faith so that your life will go better. That's the kind of implicit message. Even in times of trial, it'll go better for you if you grow this way or if you have this going on. I'm not saying those things aren't true. I would just say it's a misguided principle. The more obsessed you are with you and the more concerned you are with you when it comes to your growth, I would say your growth will be stunted. And your growth will be hindered. The more you are concerned with God and others, the more you will grow. 
And so, who does your sanctification matter for? Or who or what is your sanctification for if it's not for you? First, it's for the honor of God. Your sanctification is for the honor and the glory of God. And then second, it's for other people. Morality matters because it matters to God. And morality matters because it matters for our neighbor. Right? Your sanctification is good for every person you have a relationship with. Especially your husband or wife. Right? So not only... Does God sanctify us substantially through relationships? The fruit of sanctification is most obviously displayed in relationships. This is why God has set it up this way. This is how God is using your marriage to change you. He's declared you righteous in Jesus. That's done. It's over. You can rest and trust Christ. And he's changing you through this married relationship. Real love, friends. See, real love is something that God is working in you through the Spirit of Christ, right? Real love moves toward your spouse in his or her worst moments, not away from them. Real love shows compassion and charity to your spouse in the midst of weakness, not once the weakness is kind of hidden. Real love draws your spouse into kind and gentle conversation in the midst of ugliness, not when the ugliness is over. And that real love is something that we don't produce in ourselves. God, by His Spirit, works it in us. And so as we kind of land this plane, I talked earlier about how every marriage eventually comes to that place where the struggle is real. Maybe you're there right now. The struggle is real scenario for us in marriage often happens when that fake love of attraction that we thought about earlier, that fake love of self-actualization, that fake love of my happiness and you being able to give me that, real love is born out of those things. That's true. But the crisis happens when those things fall apart. When attraction and self-actualization and the objective of my happiness are exposed for what they are, the struggle gets real. In marriage. But praise God that it is precisely when that happens that real love can grow. Right? So if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, man, my marriage is hard right now. And maybe some of these things that we're considering together are nailing you pretty good. Take heart in that reality. One, you're righteous in Christ if you're trusting him. Two, God is faithful to work in you by his spirit. And that you're actually in a position in your marriage where you're no longer blind by all these fake things. Blinded, I should say. But the real potential for real love to grow is there. The spirit of God in us produces that real love as we trust Christ and rest in him. As we rest in his righteousness and realize that yeah, I could never do anything about my situation before God. And also, as we become, as we've thought about, aware of our need for grace and our pleading for it, that we might live unto God. God works in us to change us as we flee from sin. God produces real love in us as we gather in a group like this. As we come here every Lord's Day because God told us to do it and we need it so desperately. He is working real love in your heart and mind even now. He works real love 
in our hearts and in our minds as we read and sit under the Word of God. Right? I say things like this a lot, like the ordinary means stuff, and I hope you don't get tired of hearing it. It's to give you hope. Because often when we think about, well, how on earth, brother, would real love ever be born and grown in my heart? It's this mystical unicorn thing that we don't have any idea how to get it. God has told us in his word how, how this happens. One, I've declared you righteous. I've saved you. I will do it. You can trust me. And then here are the means through which I will make this happen. And they're actually ordinary. Hence the title, Ordinary Means. Through ordinary means, God accomplishes extraordinary ends. Praise be to his name. And so he continues to work real love in us as we not only read and center the word of God, but as we partake of the Lord's table. I don't know if you've thought about that before. That that sacrament that we'll observe here in just a few minutes is a means of sustaining your faith. It is a means of us. We come together as a body, corporately, communion, right, to the table to testify to one another about what Jesus has done and about the fact that we're good with God because of Christ. We are changed and God works real love in us as we spend time in community, as we spend time with our brothers and sisters in the faith, as we encourage one another, as we build one another up, as we stir one another up to love and good works, as we even correct each other. God makes and causes real love to grow. God makes and causes real love to grow in us when we sing. When we sing the gospel, when we sing the Bible, that happens. And lastly, friends, God causes real love to be born in us and grow in us and develop in us as we pray. And so let's do that now. Our Father in heaven, we come to you as sinners who are in and of ourselves helpless and hopeless. We are utterly selfish and self-absorbed and we confess that, God. We are in desperate need of your grace that we might be changed, that we might have real love for you and real love for our neighbor, including our husbands or our wives. Father, we pray that you would give that grace, that you would continue to change us through the means that you have given us, that you would empower by your spirit all of these things that we've thought about. As we trust in Christ and as we read and sit under the word, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, as we sing and as we pray, we pray that you would change us. We pray for each of the marriages and all of the relationships represented here. That as we change, those relationships would flourish. That they would blossom and grow into something that is honoring to you and into something that is really good for our neighbor, for others. Take our eyes off of ourselves in everything we pray. Continue to sustain our faith in Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.